Take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9. Matthew, chapter 9, is where I want to direct your attention this morning. We're going to begin by reading from verses 14 through 17. Matthew 9, 14 through 17. While you're turning there, I will express again a word of appreciation to our worship teams. We're thankful for so many people who volunteer and lead in our um, worship on Sunday mornings. Uh, As we go downstairs uh, for the next uh, several weeks, uh, we might, uh, things might be a little bit more minimalistic uh, with our worship team down there, Uh, but um, so our some of our volunteers will enjoy a little bit of a respite, but we're grateful to them for their service in our church. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 14. You follow along as I read from the scriptures. Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst and the wine will run out and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. I'd like to begin by showing you a picture. I think it's one of the most wonderful pictures of the year, not because of the main subject in this picture and not because it's such a high-quality photograph. This is a screenshot captured from a television by a woman by the name of Marina Medvin. And some of you recognize the main subject in this screenshot. Her name is Amy Coney Barrett, and she's standing on September 26th in the Rose Garden outside the White House, listening as Donald Trump, President Trump, is introducing her as his nominee for the Supreme Court. Now, uh, Amy Coney Barrett engenders either great joy or great despair, depending on your political persuasion. I'm not interested this morning in the constitutional issues. I want you to look at the picture of her little girl standing in front of her. That's her youngest daughter. She's nine years old. Her name is Juliet. And look at the expression on her face. I don't know when exactly this moment was captured, but you know how those speeches go. Uh, the president will stand uh, behind the, the podium and he will introduce his nominee and he'll talk about her and praise her skills, her stellar education, her wise judgments, her judicial temperament, her American values. And at some point in time when the president was talking about Amy Coney Barrett like this, Juliet, her daughter, turned to her with that face and said, the face that says, my mom is a big deal. I saw that face and I wondered to myself if this will uh, pay off at all for Amy Coney Barrett. If, you, if, she's, uh, if her nomination is passed, confirmed by the Senate, um, I wonder, does an associate justice of the United States have any more success in getting her children to put away laundry than you do? I wonder about that. And, and if, if the president has praised you in front of the nation... Does that help when you have to turn around to your children fighting in the back seat and say, I'm going to pull this car over, right? That gavel might come in handy then, right, in those moments. Uh, It's a good picture. This is a beautiful picture. There are some people who are so um, 
antagonistic toward Amy Coney Barrett's record and even some who have been quite negative about her large family. But I think you have to be pretty cold-hearted not to see something good and beautiful in a daughter looking at her mother like this. In fact, uh, this is a mutual feeling between parents and children, isn't it? Children long for those looks from their parents. You can tell that by the number of times that a child at a playground will say, Watch me, watch me, watch me. They're looking for their mom or dad to smile. And parents are slow to admit this sometimes. They hope for that sort of admiration from their children too. You want, don't you as a parent, you want your kids to think highly of you, to admire you and the choices that you've made and the parenting you've done and the work that you do. You, You long for that. I want you to think about Juliet's beaming face when we come to this paragraph in the Gospel of Matthew. This is a question and answer session between the disciples of John and the Lord Jesus. And the problem that the disciples of John have is that they do not admire Jesus enough. Their expectations of him are too small. Their evaluation of him is too small. They do not have a high enough view of the glory and majesty and wonder and goodness of the Lord Jesus. And Matthew wrote this paragraph because he's afraid that you might have that same problem. He recorded this conversation because he fears that for many of us, who, even those of us who are followers of Jesus, it might be true that your Jesus is too small. Now you remember how we got this, to this point in Matthew, right? The first few chapters of Matthew introduce us to the Lord Jesus, his genealogy, his birth, um, his baptism, just the beginning of his ministry. And then in chapter 4, verse 23, through chapter 9, 35, there's this section devoted to Jesus' ministry, those bookend passage verses, where Matthew describes the preaching ministry of Jesus and the healing ministry of Jesus. In chapters 5 through 7, the first section is the preaching part. And uh, there is the greatest sermon ever preached ever in the, 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 the Bible recorded for us. And it's amazing. How, how is it that Jesus has such a close connection with the commands that God has given in the Old Testament? And how is he able to, to, to speak so well to your heart and, and connect to those commands with your heart and your needs? How is he able to speak so sensitively, so memorably, so truthfully to us? Jesus was the greatest preacher who ever lived, and it's stunning to read what he says. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we move from the preaching to the healing part. And there's a series of of miracles, 10 of them, and divided into three groups. Three groups of uh, healing, another three accounts of healing, and then three plus one accounts of healing. We'll come to that next week, and I'll tell you why I always say three plus one. Uh, and, And in between those three sections are two sets of discipleship stories. In light of who Jesus is and what Jesus can do, here's how to respond to him. And the first uh, few sentences about discipleship are a story of failure. Remember the, the hasty scholar comes to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you want to go. And Jesus says, you don't know where we're going. It's going to be uncomfortable. And then a son, the hasty son, comes along and says, I'll follow you, but first I have some family things to take care of. And Jesus says, no, follow me. So failure in that first little vignette. And the second vignette begins with Jesus approaching Matthew at the tax collector's booth. There's success here. Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew gets up immediately and follows him. 
Yes, that's what you're supposed to do. If you get the point of the Sermon on the Mount and you get the point of the healing miracles, when Jesus says, follow me, you get up and you follow him. And then immediately after that, there's this discussion that Jesus has with John's disciples. Matthew recorded this paragraph for us because he wants you to know if you are going to follow Jesus faithfully, you need to see him as he is. There is not one person in this room who has a big enough view of the Lord Jesus. We believe true things about him, true things that are revealed in the scripture. So our view of Jesus is accurate. It's just not full enough. It's just not rich enough. It's just not big enough. It's like describing the Pacific Ocean as a little wet. You're accurate. It's just not big enough to contain the ocean. We all need to grow in the bigness with which we see the Lord Jesus. If we're following him, understand that the footprints ahead of you and the path that he has carved is wide. His footprints are deep and long and wide and we're following him. And if your eye is on him in the glory and goodness that is inherent to him, you won't be as afraid as you are. You won't worry about things as much as you do. Those besetting sins that weigh you down won't be as heavy. You'll have more courage in your life if you recognize that the the Jesus you follow is as big as he is. Your Jesus is too small. I want to walk through this passage this morning, and and we're going to do it on the basis of the images that Jesus gives of himself. He paints uh, three pictures of himself. That's a good way to look at the the passage. We're going to spend by far the longest period of time on the first one. Let's walk through them, shall we? First, the passage says, Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus is the bridegroom. This uh, account begins with a question from the disciples of John. We haven't met John the baptizer. We haven't been with him. He'll appear again in chapters 10 or 11. But uh, we haven't seen him since chapter 3 where he baptized Jesus. John the Baptist is the forerunner. He's the one who in the Old Testament was prophesied would come and prepare the way for the Messiah to come. And as a religious teacher of his day, he had disciples. Jesus has disciples. John has disciples. Pharisees have disciples. And here are some of John's disciples. The Gospels are not as optimistic about John's disciples as they are about John. These men need to grow a little bit. You can tell by a conversation that they have, a complaint that they make in John 3, the Gospel of John, chapter 3. Look at this conversation. They, that's John's disciples, came to John and said to him, Rabbi, the man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everyone's going to him. Jesus, uh, John, they say, Jesus is stealing your, your sheep. And everybody's following him and not following you. And you introduced him. You'd think they'd want to follow you, but no, they're going over to him. It's a little churlish, isn't it? A little, little competitive. A little. Well, they asked Jesus the question, uh, how is it that we and the Pharisees, fa- <laughs> if you put yourself on the Pharisees team, already there's a problem, right? How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Do you remember the conversation last week, the complaint that Jesus had? So Jesus, not, he didn't have it. It was made about him. 
Jesus was having a, he was at dinner at Matthew's house and there were tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees complained, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? They're complaining about who he's eating with. And now John's disciples are complaining about how often he's eating. (laughs) Poor Jesus can't win. Can't satisfy these, these religious leaders. Uh, Fasting was an important discipline. Um, uh, pious Jews in Jesus' day would fast twice a week on Monday and Thursday. Fasting in the scriptures is important. It's a, it's a way of approaching God in special humility. Leon Morris says this, for help in, in trouble. Uh, Frederick Bruner says fasting is a way of subjugating the body to the spirit. It is a way of saying to God, God, I am so desperate for you to work in this situation in my life that my spiritual need is so great and I feel it so keenly that I am foregoing my physical need um, to express my desire for your help in my spiritual need. Please help me intervene in my life, God. I'm desperate for you to do it. I'm hungry for you to help. John the Baptist was an ascetic. Remember John the Baptist? He lived in the wilderness. He had rough clothing. He ate bugs and honey. He did not live in palaces. He did not have fancy clothes. He was a bit of an ascetic. He was a serious man. He preached about sin and repentance and judgment. He was a serious man. Why isn't Jesus so serious? He's going to parties, and you should see who's at those parties. And he doesn't fast. It's interesting, there are some Christians even today who have one model for what it means to be a preacher, and John the Baptist is it. And if you're not a preacher, you're not faithful. Why isn't Jesus as serious as John is? He's not serious about who he associates with. He's not serious about spiritual disciplines. And Jesus gives them an answer. How can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? John's disciples don't know that Jesus' presence, his presence means this is a time for joy and feasting, not mourning and not fasting. He uses this image of the bridegroom. In our culture, the the star of the wedding is the bride. She's the one who shops forever for her dress. She's the one when they come in the room, everybody stands, here she is. At that moment in time, the bridegroom is here, but you all turn your back on the bridegroom so you can look at the star as she makes her grand entrance. She paid a lot of money for that dress. You're wearing a rental. Nobody wants to see you, okay? It's the way it is. But in Jesus' day, um, uh, the bridegroom shared more equally in the joy. Uh, In fact, there were part of the festivities, this week-long wedding ceremony that they would have, the celebration, where he was uh, uh, the star. The wedding was, a, uh, as I said, a week-long celebration, feasting, dancing, fun. And if you show up at a wedding to mourn, to fast, with your mourning clothes on, and if you turn down every bit of food, you're not there in the spirit of the wedding. You're actually being a self-centered and vain person. It's out of place. You're drawing attention to yourself. And this is about the bridegroom and about the bride and not about you. Jesus says, the bridegroom is here. This is not the time for fasting. This is the time for joy. And and John's disciples don't recognize, they're not willing to understand that Jesus brings the dawning of this new age. The Messiah is here. 
Now, John used this image of the bridegroom. John himself, remember back in, well, actually, uh, in response to this question, look what John says. He says, To this John replied, A person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The disciples of John should have recognized what Jesus said, right? Because John had already said this to them. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and now it is complete. I wish John's disciples were as excited about Jesus as John was. He must, my King James upbringing takes over, increase and I must decrease. Right? Jesus is the bridegroom. His coming is is an occasion for joy. It's not for mourning. It's not for fasting. It's for joy. I actually think that more is going on here in this passage than the original audience understood. I think Matthew wants us to pick up on this. We've had more time to think about what Jesus is saying than his original audience. But uh, Jesus here is plugging into some of the images in the Old Testament. When the, when the Hebrew scriptures speak about God's relationship with the nation of Israel, it uses this same imagery of bridegroom. Look at Isaiah 54, 5 to 8. For your maker is your husband... The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He's called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit. A wife who married young only to be rejected, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with deep compassion I will bring you back. In a surge of anger, righteous anger at their uh, disobedience. In a surge of anger I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. Jesus is saying when he says, I'm the bridegroom, he's saying not only is he saying the, the, the new age has begun, he is saying he's plugging in very subtly. I think it went over the heads of most of these people. He's plugging into this Old Testament imagery. Uh, here I am, the Son of God incarnate. Same imagery happens in Hosea chapter 2, verses 16. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals, the Baals from her lips. No longer will their names be invoked. So the Hebrew word for master is the word Baal. So uh, God is saying, you're not going to use that name to refer to me. You're not going to confuse me with these false gods. You're going to call me my husband. I'm betrothed to you. Verse 18 Continues, in that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. So Jesus, when he says, I'm the bridegroom, he's plugging into these images. We even have more information, don't we, as followers of Jesus? The book of Ephesians says that Christ is like a husband who lays his life down for his bride, the church. Or think about the book of Revelation at the end. The people of God descend from heaven adorned as a bride for her husband. The story of the book of Revelation is the prince who leaves his palace and comes to earth, slays the dragon, rescues his bride, and takes her to be with him forever in his palace. 
I'm not sure they got this. They understood this all. We've read the rest of the story, so we understand how Jesus understands himself. Who does he think he is? He's the Messiah. He's God in the flesh. And from the beginning, he knows this. He says something else that must have confused them in this answer. He says to them, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. This must have confused them. How can, that word taken is a a violent word uh, that ripped away would be a a good translation. The bridegroom's going to be ripped away from them. Now we're not really using wedding imagery so much. Uh, how, How can this be that Jesus would claim to be the Messiah, yea, that he would claim to be the Son of God incarnate, and and it's possible for someone to be strong enough to rip him away from his people? How can that be? These original audience members of Jesus listening to him had no concept of how the Messiah could be both God in the flesh and be so weak, as it were, to be torn away, to be destroyed, to be uh, uh, taken away from his people. Now we know, we know, don't we, because we've read the rest of the story, we know how it can be that the incarnate Son of God can be taken away. The, The Bible tells us he's the one who lays down his life for his bride. He loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. In fact, Jesus did what only the incarnate Son of God could do. Only the incarnate Son of God could offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. Only he, only the infinite Son of God could pay the penalty of sin that we owed. When he was crucified, he took our place on the cross and offers life and forgiveness to all who will receive it uh, by faith. Jesus refers to this time when the bridegroom is taken away from them, then the disciples will fast. He's talking about this time between Friday and Sunday, Good Friday and Resurrection Day, when the disciples were, did not understand what was happening and they were full of grief. Now, we should think, Jesus is mentioning fasting here, then they will fast. We should think for just a minute about fasting today. It's inappropriate to fast when Jesus is here because his coming is a coming of joy. But what about now? Well, they fasted in in the book of Acts. Jesus is with us. That's one of the central premises, promises of Matthew. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. He's with us, but not quite in the same way that he is here and the pages of Matthew 9 in this account. I think what's happening here is that the Lord Jesus is not forbidding his people to fast. Um, It's not a a rule that he's laying down for them like the disciples or there was a fast day in the Hebrew scriptures commanded. He's he's not laying that down for us as a rule. He's giving us the freedom to fast. In fact, just for a moment, I, I would gladly commend to you a day of fasting in the next 10 days between now and election day. And that'd be a good use of your time. Uh, fast and pray and call down heaven that God will free the world of this grip of the pandemic that we're in. And that God would show mercy on us as we approach election day as a nation. 
And we've done this before as, as a congregation. We have engaged in periods of, of fasting. Remember how uh, we, we think about this. A, a 24-hour fast is a good model to follow, a helpful one. Not the only one, but it's a helpful one. Fasting from after dinner, one night, all the way through to the next day until dinner. So you skip breakfast and lunch. It's a 24-hour fast. And during that time uh, of breakfast and lunch, when you'd normally be eating, read your Bible and pray, call down heaven, ask God for his help. But fasting, it, it, we have the freedom to do so, and, and, and some of us feel the pressure to do so at, at various circumstances in our lives, and even then, it's different because Jesus has come. John's disciples don't understand. They don't understand the significance of the fact that he has come, that his coming is, is a source of joy. It is gladness that is bigger than anything in the entire world. Jesus doesn't say this because he's not familiar with suffering. He's, he says it's not a time for mourn, and he doesn't say that because he thinks that everything is great and peachy keen and wonderful and there's no trouble in the world. Jesus is familiar with the trouble that's going on. He's healing these people. He has familiar with grieving parents. He is familiar with demon-tormented people. He's familiar with those who are paralyzed and those who are afraid and those whose lives are broken. Jesus is very familiar with suffering, and yet he still says, this is not a time for mourning. Now, why does he say that? Because there is no bad news that is so deep that the good news of Jesus is not deeper still. There's no suffering so great that the news of Jesus' coming is not greater still than that. It's sort of like what happens that time that you totaled your dad's car. Do you remember that? You were driving on one of those twisting roads of Manor Township, and, and you were driving too fast, and the road curved, and you knew about the curve, but you were still going too fast, and you were adjusting the radio at the time, and, and you, you went off the road, and you grazed a tree, and you flipped three times in a cornfield. You had your seatbelt on, so you walked away from the accident. Cars totaled. You called your dad. He said, what happened? Dad, there was an accident. The car, it's, it's in bad shape. Well, how are you? Are you okay? Yes, I'm okay. Good. Your dad showed up. He's never hugged you harder than, than he did on that day that you totaled his car. Because the bad news is his investment, his car that he hasn't paid off yet, is there destroyed, but you're okay. There's bad news and there's good news, and the good news is infinitely better than the bad news. That's the context in which the Lord Jesus places the sorrow and the grief in this world. There is no bad news that is so bad that it can outdo or outperform or outlast or outrun the good news of the fact that the Lord Jesus has come, has died for us, and has risen from the dead. We struggle to believe this. We struggle to encounter the sorrows of this world in light of that. Matthew knew you would have this problem, so he wrote this paragraph. He knew that you would have to fight the fight of faith to persevere in rejoicing in the good news in the face of great sorrow. He knew that we would struggle with this. And that's why he wrote this paragraph. 
to tell us, Jesus the bridegroom has come. Your Jesus is too small. I know he's too small because you forget him often. You think sometimes he's boring. Preachers are boring. Jesus is not boring, but preachers are boring. Your Jesus is too small because the temptations around you are so attractive that you think that succumbing to them will make you happier than following Jesus. His promises fail to bring you the comfort that they, with all the weight of the comfort that they come from the lips of Jesus. Your Jesus is too small because his word has such little authority in your life when you're making decisions. Don't succumb to the same short view of Jesus that John's disciples had. Now, we don't have much time to talk about the second and third images, but that's okay because the meaning of them both is the same. Jesus is the new cloth, he says in verse 16, and Jesus is the new wine, he says in verse 17. And the lesson of both of these images, we'll talk about them in a minute, is that Jesus here is here to expand and to burst out all of the categories of a life of faith that the disciples of John had in mind. He is bigger than they think. They are trying to uh, encapsulate him in something small. Jesus is bigger than those things. And, and he won't fit in their categories. Uh, Let's talk about cloth for just a minute. If you are a seamstress in the room or a sewer, you know what to do with new cloth before you make anything. You've got to wash the new cloth. A new cloth that's unshrunk has to be shrunkened. It has to be washed, right, so it shrinks. Because if you take a new piece of cloth and you use it to patch a hole in a, in a garment, uh, an old garment that has been washed, when, uh, when you wash it, uh, that patch will shrink and it will tear away from the, new, from the old garment and it will make the hole worse. You've got you to match old cloth with old garments. You've got to put them together. The new and the old don't go together. Same thing happens in this uh, image when he talks about wine. Talk about wine to a group of Baptists. Here we go. Experts us all. So, uh, wine and wineskins. So, uh, in Jesus' day, they would hold, uh, uh, contain their wine in wine skins, and it would be a, literally a skin of an animal. You would take the skin and you would treat the skin, clean the skin really well, and then sew it shut so it, you had a, a one bag, the skin, and then you'd put new wine in it. And the new wine would go in, and over time it would ferment and season, and, and it would expand. And the new wine skin, because it was fresh skin, would have the, the, the flexibility to expand with that fermenting wine. Eventually, though, in time, that wineskin would become hard and stiff over time. And if you tried to put new wine in that hardened, stiffened, old wineskin, when the new wine fermented, it would try to expand, and the wineskin would burst because there's not enough uh, flexibility to, 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 to move. Jesus says, I am the new cloth, I am the new wine, and I am bigger and uh, not suited to the old. What's the old? Well, the old would, of course, in Matthew be the distorted religious practices of the Pharisees. Jesus has come to bust out everything that they think is involved in faithfulness to God. 
It involves, the old involves the preparation ministry of John the Baptist, the ministry of longing and desire and mourning and not satisfaction. Jesus has come to bust that out. But also, I think, the law and the prophets themselves. Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he says, but he does it in such a magnificent way, such a huge way, a bursting sort of amazing way. Like filling your 30-foot round above-ground swimming pool with the Susquehanna River. Take your 30-foot above-ground swimming pool and try to pour in it the Susquehanna River. What will happen? Oh, it will get full. And it will burst out. Your 30-foot swimming pool is sufficient to take a dip in. But when you add the water of the Susquehanna River, you can go boating, sailing, kayaking, canoeing, tubing. It's, it's huge. We expect matchbox cars and Jesus brings a Porsche 911. We expect a climbing gym and Jesus brings the Alps. We expect hamburger and Jesus brings filet mignon. We expect a playground, which would be fun, swings and slides. But Jesus brings Disney World. Your Jesus is too small. We could trace this through the Bible. We could if we, if we spent some time. At his death, Jesus inaugurates the new covenant. And the new covenant is huge in comparison to the old covenant. In the new covenant, God promises to give us a heart of flesh and a set of a heart of stone. In John chapter 4, Jesus said, people won't worship in Jerusalem anymore. That won't be the place for worship. They'll worship in spirit and in truth in all kinds of places in the world. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is a new priest and he busts out the, the restrictions of the old priesthood in the book of Leviticus. Jesus is new cloth. He's new wine, and the old is too small to contain him. If the old is a lightning bug, Jesus is the lightning. And if you follow him like a disciple of John, and if you follow him like a, a, a Pharisee, that will be one true sign that your Jesus is too small. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we do so gladly through the Lord Jesus who is our Savior, our great, glorious Savior. Lord, we confess to you that um, we deal with this. This is our temptation. This is our tendency. This is the rut that we fall into thinking that Jesus is small and that his promises don't matter and that his commands can easily be ignored and his presence is something to be um, marginalized. Lord, we confess to you. We're thankful to you. Your word tells us the truth about Jesus, so we believe true things about him, but not big things about him. Thank you, Lord, for the songs that we have sung this morning that remind us of his supremacy. Lord, help us. Help us to remember the depth and breadth and height and length of the good news that Jesus has come because we're surrounded by bad news. So forgive us for having a too small view of the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you would expand our minds and our hearts that we might recognize the preeminence that he has in all things. 
Help us in our moments of fear and worry and doubt and sorrow. Thank you for Matthew and the work of the Holy Spirit to give us this paragraph so that we can be free from our small views of Jesus. It's in his name that we pray these things.